And so that is where we are in the text. Now, I love the King James Version. Rather than saying in plenty or in want, it says whether I'm abounding or I'm abasing or abased. Uh, there. We'll, we'll talk more about uh, all of those different sections in just a moment. But we have here before us the secret of contentment that Paul lays out. And he begins, though, with dealing with some of the matters that are at hand in the letter and the cause for the letter. And if you recall, as we've gone through this letter, we recognize that Paul has been imprisoned in a Roman jail, uh, likely a Roman jail. And it's, it's not probably the easiest imprisonment. He kind of speaks to it as if it may be an imprisonment where he will not actually return. A, a fellow by the name of Clement in Rome wrote a letter around 90-95 AD to a church in Corinth. And in that letter, and it may be the same Clement, by the way, that Paul speaks of here as his fellow worker and whose name is written in the book of life. If that's the case, he's hooked up. But nonetheless, uh, he writes about Paul and he says that Paul was actually imprisoned seven times. And so whether this is uh, seven times a charm, seventh and final uh, time for, for Paul here, we, we don't know. But we do know that prison conditions are typically difficult. And that you do not have any sustenance or supplies unless they are brought to you by outside people trying to be able to support you from, from some, some other distance. And the Philippian church had been quite intimate with Paul and quite famous, actually, for being a church, though not that easily accessing him in his different imprisonments, who had come to him time and time again, whether it be in Macedonia or whether it be in Europe, to, to come to him time and time again to be able to keep bringing him that sort of sustenance. And now Epaphroditus has arrived, and perhaps it, it has cost him almost his life to be able to get there, but he's arrived and he's brought the gift to Paul, and now Paul, instead of spitting feathers, is eating chicken. Right? And, and now, now he's actually in a, a really content situation, but he makes sure that we understand that his contentment is not based on just stuff or circumstances. But, but I do love what he, what he says to them as he says, I am rejoicing greatly. Uh, the, the word for greatly here is megalo, megalo. And, and it's this, this idea that is not used quite often in the New Testament, but now Paul in addition to all the rejoicing that he's already com commented on, is now looks like he's almost like bursting forth. Uh, it's the idea of almost like a flower coming into full blossom with just joy pouring out of all of his pores. And then he uses a word here where he says, and you have renewed your concern for me. Renewed is, probably doesn't really capture it. The, the literal idea of the word is that you, my friends in Philippi, you have now, like a flower as well, you have come into full blossom. You have come again as, as if I've made it through yet another Boston winter. And I'm holding on. And trying, any of you who've grown up in the north, you know what it's like. It's not like, you know, Virginia Beach winters, where like once a week it's 72 and sunny, even in the winter. But I mean, up north, I grew up in, in the mean streets of, of the Jersey Shore. Fist pumping going on everywhere. You had to be careful not to get hit by those things. But, 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 but during those winters, you know, you would long for any sort of hint of spring, and, and yet, oh, yet another snowstorm hits you. It is April. What are you doing with another snowstorm? But then finally, it seems as if it just bursts forth into all things spring, and here's Easter and rebirth. And not only have pitchers and catchers reported, but spring training in full bloom. It's opening day. All is right with the world again. Hallelujah. That's me as a non-Christian saying hallelujah as a kid. 
But, but, but this is very much that idea of refreshment is seeing the, the, the blossoms bloom again. And, and that's what Philippi looks like to Paul at this moment, is to see all the blossoms of friendship bloom again before my very eyes. So how can I not write you this letter to be able to give you all of this thanks? Uh, it's really, really quite beautiful um, the way that Paul uh, point, uh, talks about this for them. But the, the big thing that he wants to talk about here is not just his joy, because he has covered that, or even his peace, which he has just covered as well. But now to talk about this idea of a secret, a secret that he has learned. And what's interesting is the word that he uses for learned here is the word that, well, when I was in college, we had to learn the secrets of our fraternity. And there was a secret handshake, there was a, a, a secret motto, uh, there was a secret phrase that you would use. Um, I could give them all right now, but you wouldn't care. And I don't care as much anymore anyway. But, but once you knew those, you thought, wow, I'm a made man. I've really arrived. And, and at the end of the ceremony, which involved a lot of dry ice and spooky fog and guys in long brown robes and blindfolds and bright lights and different things being you know, kind of brought into your education, you learned all these secrets. But then you, you know, you're sworn to kind of hold on to these secrets as well. Well, the word that Paul uses here for I've learned the secrets is that word that would be used in the mystery religions, like Mithras and other religions that were in vogue at this time of the first century. And the idea that you got inside knowledge and you were the inner circle, that showed that you really were a made man, that you really had arrived and had come to really transcend your existence with deeper knowledge of greater things. So this is the word that Paul uses here. I have learned the secret. And I'm going to be bringing it to you, courtesy of Jesus Christ. And, and the secret is regarding this idea of contentment. And earlier when uh, Jeff preached last week, and, and rightly so when he was going through verse uh, 8 and 9 that we had just studied, he talked about, hey, these are the things, Paul says, that should occupy the thoughts of your mind. That's right. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, occupy your thoughts in your mind, contemplate those things. Now what's interesting is that list, for the most part, had, yes, a lot of applicability to Christianity, but it was also a list that would have been very appealing to the great honorable Roman citizens of Philippi. Don't ever lose sight of the fact that we are looking at a letter received in a colony of Rome. That gave them status and prestige. That gave them honor. That's what puffed up their chest. They were Romans of the first order. They were disciplined men and women. They were men and women of honor, and they had street cred. And in this list were the things that you would ascribe to yourself as you were a person of such great honor. And so there's a lot here that is appealing to the ears of his particular audience, the, the, the people of Philippi as well, and where from whence uh, this, this church has been called. Now Paul uses the word contentment, which is likewise a word that was favorite word of the Stoics, kind of like the honorable, disciplined religion of the day, not the, you know, kind of the wild, weird religion of the day, but the disciplined religion of the day was Stoicism. And if we, we I know the idea of being a Stoic now. You, you talk of someone who's Stoic as man of few words, that no matter what comes to him, he just kind of grin and bear it, stiff upper left, all that sort of stuff. 
But, but Stoicism was much more than that, and it was a very complete philosophy, and it was one that was very gripping, and it was that did that raise your station of life, because it taught you delayed gratification and very practical principles that really did ensure success from an earthly standpoint. And now when Paul uses contentment, it's one of the highest goals of Stoicism. And the word that he uses is the same word that they use as well. And, and he's actually now showing us that, hey, this very thing that is in such vogue, this thing that everybody's running after there in Philippi, well, you've got that thing, I've got that thing. Doesn't come easy, by the way. It isn't just, you know, fall off a rock in Christ and you've got it. You're going to have to learn, really learn the secret of this thing. And, and that's what we're going to look at today, is to learn the secret of contentment. But in order to do that, first, what we've got to do, and if you're keeping score at home, this would be my first point, dissect your discontent. And what, what, what I mean by that is that you, you may not have learned to be content in any and every circumstance. You may not know what it is to abound in a base and still have this wonderful, as Paul talked about earlier, this regal kindness and security and gentleness about you. You know, that's what Paul says. Let this be evident to all people. Having arrived in Christ, you now walk around with the greatest of all honors. But yet, with all of that honor, it doesn't give you a big head, but instead it makes you all the more of a gentle and kind person, able to love and able to connect at the greatest of all intimate levels. And so now Paul says, though, but there is a discontentment. And one way or another, people are all having to deal with discontentment. And for me, I, I, I've shared this story before, but I, but I remember that I had come to a place in my life where I felt like, wow, I got it going on. I'm, I'm quite the arrived man. I've, I've got a great job. I'm, I'm kind of you know, advancing beyond others my age. Uh, Fortune 500 company, corporate corridors, uh, the wife, the 2.3 kids, the Volvo, the company car, uh, the big brick house, the nice suburbs, all, all of that was going on. But I, but I do remember even as these things were, were coming at an even faster and more, I thought, wonderful pace, I remember that despite all that coming, kind of contemplating my life and thinking, is that all there is? Is that all there is to life? Well, then just keep dancing as the show tune goes. And I, and I remember writing in my journal that year as I would try to revise and edit my great life vision and mission statements and all of those things. But, but I remember thinking, maybe, maybe there's something to this whole churchy Jesus thing. And I remember just writing a small goal at that time, as uh, 1992 was, was coming to a close, and saying, maybe get more involved with some sort of Jesus religion-y type, type thing. I didn't even know what it was, but I knew maybe that would round me out, and maybe there's something there as, um, uh, not Nietzsche, but uh, one of the great atheists said, that it was the opiate of the masses, right? Well, maybe it could be an opiate for my soul. Maybe, maybe religion would be that, that very thing for me as well. And, and I could kind of medicate whatever my discontentment was by sprinkling a little Jesus on it. And thereby, you know, being viewed as a, a deeper man of greater character. Uh, and boy, was I in for the, the ride of my life. What was going to come my way just a little bit after that. But we all have, born within us, 
a discontentment if we're ever mature enough or thoughtful enough to recognize it, that it's there. Uh, C.S. Lewis says something rather interesting. He says, after he goes on talking about, hey, if a, if a baby is hungry, there's milk. If a baby duckling is ready to swim, there's water. For any of these things, there is something here on earth ready to satisfy the discontented needs of that being. However, he goes on to say, and I'll quote him here, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. Let that sink in. And it's a really insightful thought by C.S. Lewis. That if there's something within you that is not satisfied, no, no matter how much you think your, your marriage could do that, your career could do that, your friendships, your hobbies, your fitness program, no matter what all those things, if, if, if you still are left, even having experienced the, the, the fullness of that great achievement, and at the end of it, kind of recognizing that, oh my goodness, this is bliss, but I also can tell that it's a very temporary bliss. This sunset, this sunrise, this vista, this, this temperature, this afternoon in the park, these, these wonderful kind of back and forths with my friends, the enjoyment of this game, all of this, I know is wonderful, but I also know deep down in a nagging sense that this is merely perishable. And what we all have longing within us is an imperishable bliss, an imperishable delight, a contentment that can transcend any of the vagaries or the ups and downs of, of all of the different delights or despairs that come our way. And what it is that you want is God. You want his love. Underneath it all, it's the love of God. Underneath all of the work you do, it's God's approval that you really want. Underneath all of the affirmations that you get in the midst of that, it's the ultimate affirmation of Christ that you really want. But it takes a whole lot of despair to finally come to realize that. And a whole lot of broken dreams to finally come to that place. That's why I think Paul says, hey, I was advancing, I had life going on. I mean, all that we read about his testimony in the middle of this letter, despite all of these great achievements, I had to let all of those things come into view as either the emptiness that they are, or if I was putting all of my stock and all of my security in those things, to also recognize they couldn't bear the weight. If your marriage is the not only good thing in your life, but the ultimate thing in your life, well, ultimately, it's going to be crushed by how much you weight you put upon it. If your career is that, if your career is the ultimate thing that finally gives you the self-worth and esteem, the arrival identification, it's never going to bear up under the weight of what you're putting on it. And no matter how much you advance, no matter how much fun you have with your hobbies, no matter how much fun you have with your chums, no matter how deep your, your marriage may, may be, at the end of the day, if it's meant to bear 
all of this ultimate, deep, transcendent discontentment, it cannot bear up underneath it. And it will buckle under the load. And ultimately, once we, we experience those buckles again and again in all of those areas of our life, and, and unfortunately some of us have to go through the heartache of all of those different paths before we finally stop and realize, maybe there's something else that I really need. Maybe there's something more. Maybe now we're starting to get closer to the secret that Paul says. But if you're discontented right now, don't let it just be medicated away. Don't let it be that, that Hulu solves that problem for you, uh, that your hobby solves that problem for you, but go ahead and dissect your discontent. Look at it carefully and closely. What if, what if you actually do achieve all it is that you really want to be able to achieve? What if you get that job? What if you shape your husband into that man that he was always meant to be? What if you say, well, you know, I think that would go a long way. Maybe so, but you have to look over the next hill and the next hill on, on these things as well. What if, and, and I, I think either, either you have to go down that path and, and unfortunately go down the, the travails of that path or decide to trust in what the word of God is giving to us right now. And the, the question that you have to ask whenever you start to recognize that, you know what, there is discontentment, there is bitterness, there is some misery. You need to ask this then, what besides God has taken title to my heart's functional trust? I, I heard that in a sermon recently. I, I love that phrase. Your heart's functional trust. What has your heart's functional trust? What besides Jesus is the thing that makes you feel as though now I'm where I always wanted to be in life? But your identity, your joy, your main preoccupation, your loyalty, your delight, if it's, if it's not in Jesus, all of this will ultimately, sadly, come to a, a deep place of exposure. I praise God that I wasn't a young man when I came to Christ, but, but I wasn't, uh, I, I was 29 years old. I'm glad it didn't last any longer than that. But here's the odd part, is that God had to give me success in so many different areas. Only to recognize with all these outward trappings of success, thinking that now, now I should be who I've always dreamt to be. Instead, at the end of the day, there was emptiness, hollowness, shallowness. The celebration rang hollow, and I had to figure out why the reverberation. And it wasn't until, praise God, that he, and it wasn't like I was so wise, and I'm going to open the Bible and figure it out, but, but he disrupted my life. And, and all I was doing was, was running further from him and putting my stock in things other than him. What grace, what mercy, because of the great love with which he loved me, God, full of mercy, made me alive even when I was dead in self and dead in sin. Well, after, after, you've, dis, after you've dissected this discontent, then the next thing that is so important to look at is to take a deep look at the fact that you need to claim responsibility. And here's what I mean by that. That 
a man named Victor Frankl, I've been reading a book about uh, by him uh, this, this week. I read it in, back in the 90s as well. It's quite a uh, popular book, Man's Search for Meaning, a little, little book. You could probably read it in a couple sittings. But he says something really interesting. He says, between stimulus and response, there is a space. In that space is our power to choose our response. In our response lies our growth and lies our freedom. As a matter of fact, quoting from Man's Search for Meaning, Victor Frankl said, Everything can be taken from a man, but one thing, the last of the human freedoms, to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's own way. Amen. Profound, yes, but why? One of the best sellers of the 20th century. Why one of the most impactful books ever? This is why. He wrote that from Auschwitz. He was a doctor in his mid-20s. His wife was but, but, but 24. Uh, they were rounded up in the pogroms and ended up in Auschwitz and, and some other camps as well. Uh, where, but perhaps 2% of the entire population even, even made its way through. Everybody around him that he knew. Uh, he saw. You know how he saw them? He saw them in the smokestack of the bodies after being burned. That's the way that he said goodbye, just watching that smoke go. But he said that in this situation, he recognized what it was that man could do to man. Right. And not only was he, upon entering into the camp, stripped naked, he said some of the fellow prisoners foolishly even asked, is it possible I could kind of hold on to this medal? It's a medal for serving in the, in the German army in 1917. And no, you're not keeping anything. Could I perhaps keep my wedding ring? I don't think you realize I've just been married, and this is so dear to me. And the Nazis would just simply laugh and, and rip the rings off. And then began what became their ordeal of any and every circumstance. Uh, as, as Paul even talks about here, Yes, I know what it is to abound, but I know what it is to be abased, to be humiliated. And by the way, this is where this passage really takes a detour from the great thoughts of any stoic improvement of the Philippian culture. For, for them to even think about the idea of humiliation being somehow positive, of Christ emptying himself and humbling himself, humiliating himself to become man and to become ransom for us, for them, that was unthinkable and became a repulsive philosophy that all they could do is reject as weak and anemic. They were above such thoughts of a God doing such a thing or a God showing such a love. But nonetheless, as, as we look here at, at Viktor Frankl even kind of, kind of illustrating for us this idea of, I know what it is to be humiliated. I know what it is to be abased. And after entering into the camps, he, he kind of really does, and, and by the way, it's an it's a, uh, easy read, man search for meaning. Uh, but then began his ordeal, completely humiliation. Shoes also gone, clothing gone, completely stripped naked. You'd be getting another pair of shoes later, ones that didn't fit. Uh, and, and then you were shaved to completely humiliate you. Not just your head, every hair on your body. You were completely shaved to be brought down 
to a person without anything whatsoever. And, and then began the work. And even though he was a doctor, and in some cases the doctors had special duties, he did not. He worked on the railroad. He dug. And by the way, it was below freezing most of the time that this work was being done. He dug to lay the railroads. In some cases he dug uh, with, with his own hands a pipe underneath that, that, that rail station. Uh, and, and this was for contractors there in Germany who would pay the German government uh, as they would use all of the Jews as their slave labor. And, uh, and as, he, as he dug, he'd also then come home completely exhausted and uh, getting perhaps a cup of broth at the end of the day after a day of hard wages. If he was lucky, a little bit of bread. They didn't know with this little piece of bread whether to eat it all at once and cure their hunger pangs for a moment or try to extend it throughout the day with just one small piece of bread. Because if he extended it, it could be stolen. And, and, and that's the, the great choice of what to do. Uh, to in any way show a limp or a weakness of any sort was the most dangerous thing. Because the minute that you began to limp, the finger would no longer point you towards work, but the finger would point you to the showers, to the gas chambers. And if you had a limp or any sort of weakness, you were no longer useful for the work. And so off you went to the other side. So you did all you could to remain strong and to not give up, to not buckle under the ridiculously oppressive conditions that were there. Ultimately, their bodies wasted away. Not only all the subcutaneous fat, but then the muscle as well. As they became ghosts walking around, zombies, walking around through, through, through their, their lives. And, in all the while, not just enduring this emaciation, but enduring frostbite. Every day coming home, trying to stave off the frostbite, trying to keep their digits, their toes, in the midst of, uh, of the horrendous conditions. But here's the interesting thing, is that he then began to recognize that unlike all other animals under the sun, all other creatures, man is not trapped in a situation where you have no choice but to respond to your circumstance. That no matter what the stimulus, you do not have to respond without first recognizing you have a choice. In other words, put it this way, if this is stimulus and you're my dog, well then, you are hardwired of what your response is going to be. That hardwiring is either by instinct or by conditioning. But one way or another, all beasts, all creatures are, are, are made this way, except for Jamie and the rest of you. But you, you all have a gap between stimulus and response. In other words, as, as Frankel says, you have responsibility, or the ability to respond. And what fills that gap, astoundingly, unlike any other creature, what fills that gap is the image of God. As the theologians would say in Latin, imago Dei. Not much different to say image of God, but I sound a whole lot more impressive when I write imago Dei up there. There, I pulled up the veil, didn't work anymore. Okay, but anyway. So, but here, between the stimulus and the response, you have the gap. That gap is because you, unlike every other creature, are made in the image of God. Amen. And so, even though 
there is a, a delightful, uh, for my dog, banana that is put before you. You don't have to do a dance and, and you know try to pander and, 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 and do all these things, twirl, uh, to, to, to respond to that banana. Why? Because you, Jamie, are made in the image of God. And if I hold out that banana in front of you, you don't have to start to dance uncontrollably because you are not hardwired to that stimulus. You are made in the image of God. And, and what fills us, even as we look in Genesis 1 and 2, what is different from us, from all other creatures? Well, we have a moral conscience. We have free will. That's the freedom that Frankl talked about. We have purpose that drives our life, a greater purpose than just having to get the next bite of potassium that is placed before our, 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 our eyes. And we also have, uniquely like God, creative imagination to even imagine different scenarios of how I will respond. This is big. I mean, this is like incredible. And Frankl does a brilliant job of, of being able to help make the, everybody aware of this and to recognize the great power that we really do possess made in the image of God. And by the end of his captivity, he began to realize, as he began to become more keenly aware of his responsibility, this gap, this freedom, liberty that exists here, even though he was a captive, he began to recognize, even though I am the worst of all prisoners, perhaps on the face of the earth right now, I nonetheless have a freedom that can never be taken from me. The freedom to choose my response no matter what stimulus is brought before me. And he also even began to, to pity his Nazi captors because they had become so conditioned that they had actually shrunk what was given to them. They no longer were thinking for themselves. They were part of the machine and they had closed the very image of God and had become the brute beasts that the Bible talks about versus those who are really made as, as we are in the image of God. But the big thing that, that he actually recognized that it comes down to is it comes down to purpose. What is the great purpose that animates your soul? What is the great purpose for which you strive each day? If you had a purpose in Auschwitz, you were likely to make it another week, another month, and maybe to home. But the second that you could no longer articulate your purpose, you are likely going to look for the finger to point to the left and to be glad that you don't have to commit suicide, but they'll do it for you because you no longer have an overriding purpose that guides your life. Now for us, all of this is, is interesting, but Interestingly, Frankl even quotes, ironically, or perhaps graciously, Nietzsche. Nietzsche is the one who kind of talked about the Uppermensch and actually gave rise to the, uh, the, the, the very idea of the Third Reich. But here's what Nietzsche says. Those who have a why to live can bear with almost any how. If your purpose is compelling enough, it doesn't matter what's coming your way. You're going to be able to transcend it and live for the greater reason for your life. Now, that, that is all super true, and even the Stoics would hold to that. But that's not the secret. This is not a secret that, that needs to be learned. This is a truism 
that has always been available to us and recognizing who we are. And even th those of us who have never thought such deep thoughts as this even recognize, you know what? I'm not going to let that person have control over my life anymore. I'm not going to be bitter anymore. I'm not going to be a slave to, to my boss and my attitude anymore. I'm going to rise above those things. Even in our secular flesh, we've recognized this because even in our secular flesh, we're still made in the image of God. There's something so much bigger though, but it, let me, I'm sorry, before I move on to that, but this purpose, yes, you can have a secular purpose. And that's what I would always try to derive for myself. That's why the mission statement, that's why the vision statement, what was the grand transcendent plan of my life that was going to drive me on and help me navigate obstacles and overcome all setbacks. My great self-described, self-manufactured uh, purpose. But you can see how that's going to collapse on itself. Because it's all, all, all contingent upon me realizing that this purpose was all purpose. In other words, it would stand no matter what came. But, but what if, as Frankl says, what if your purpose was your family? Well, the death camp can take that away. What if your purpose is your career? The death camp can take that away. Uh, Lalo Zedo, I'll, I'll never forget seeing him on the David Letterman show back in the 90s. He was a, a linebacker, maybe a lineman, uh, for the Oakland Raiders. And I remember him saying, you know, my, my strength is my strength. It's my purpose. But now that I no longer have my strength, I don't know what I'm supposed to be. Got to be careful because any purpose that we manufacture in and of ourselves, even if you say, oh, it won't be taken away, it's bulletproof, it's fireproof. No. Any purpose, any purpose that we conjure up is fragile. Yep. Beyond, beyond our... Uh, ability to even appreciate. But here's the beauty of what Paul learned. If you really want, no matter what comes your way, living in plenty or in want, abounding or abasing, success or ultimate sadness, no matter what, in all of these things, here's the secret. The secret is that you don't have just a purpose, but you have an identity in Jesus that more than overwhelms any stimulus, any circumstance that comes your way. And my final point is, contend to be content. And I don't mean try hard to be content. What I mean is, because of who you are, and because of your great purpose, contend for that purpose. Now that you are a child of God, contend for the purposes of God. Ernest Becker was a disciple of Freud. He never embraced faith of any kind or any religion. But this is what he says. All the analysis in the world does not allow the person to find out who he is and why he is on earth. Why he has to die, how he can make life a triumph. It is when psychology pretends to do this. When it seeks to offer a full explanation for human unhappiness, it becomes a fraud and makes an impasse from which you cannot escape. Hope you appreciate the depth of what he just said there. He's saying that the greatest of all insightful human endeavors, if it tries to tell you 
what your greater purpose is, why you are, why you are here, what is the greater meaning of all of life, if anything purports to be able to say that, well then it is a fraud. Because it has overstepped its own definition of what it's meant to do. And so, Paul says, in any and every circumstance, he has learned the secret. Way beyond just the fact that we are men and women, that we are made in the image of God. Paul says in 2 Timothy 4.16, At my first defense, no one came to my support. Everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them. But now listen to this. But the Lord stood at my side. He gave me strength so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. And I was delivered from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Those are the very last words penned by Paul that we have in the New Testament. The last book that he writes, the last sentence that he writes. What is his firm commitment? Even though it's not going to be much further from this point in time where Nero is going to chop off his head, is that the Lord is with me. Well, did Jesus leave him when he was brought to the gallows and his head was chopped off? Not at all. Whether living in plenty or in want, abasing or abounding, whether you're preaching successfully or persecuted successfully, either way, Paul recognized the Lord is with me. Many of us have a crazy ups and downs in our lives. You know, I, I mean, this is years ago now, but I, but I remember uh, before Caleb was born that uh, Deb and I trying to be pregnant and on, on, on two different occasions, actually one, one with twins, uh, you know, we got the just terrible, devastating news that the, the uh, babies didn't look like they were going to be viable. And, you know, first with the first one, how devastating that was, and thinking, oh, now, yes, now, now perhaps these will be not only our baby, our babies. And, and yet, no, not, not viable, and, and yet another miscarriage. Uh, and, and those are difficult times, but so difficult if that's what we were putting all of our stock in, if that was our ultimate thing. But to recognize, no, there was Jesus, there's God, who in the midst of all of that is even orchestrating something more wonderful than we can begin to imagine. And that we trust in Him, fully trust in Him alone. And, and, and this is the big deal here, is that we have got to learn to really trust in God's plan no matter what. And, and, yet, and then even when, when Caleb was, was born, and, and Caleb really came into our lives, and after the miscarriages, it's easy to think, ah, oh, yes, now everything has arrived. Well, who could want anything more than this amazing young man who's going to change the world? and discover nuclear fission, and create the perpetual motion machine, and eliminate the need for fossil fuel. Praise God that he's come into the world. But, but, but again, you, you, you can also be you know, crazy puffed up in that. It, it, it's interesting, there's an article called uh, Tongue and Sheep by the Village Voice. In 1990, the author actually knew Sylvester Stallone, and um, Barbara Streisand, and Bruce Willis. Uh, she knew some of them when they worked at Macy's. She knew them before they were famous. She says, you know, before they were famous, they were actually quite pleasant people. <laughs> but when they abounded, when suddenly they got all that they ever wanted, that, now that was the frightening prospect. That sometimes it's more difficult, even when, when the great things that come in your life, to, to, to then still make everything about Jesus. 
rather than about the success. Uh, she, she goes on to say, she goes, I think God plays a trick on you that when he really wants you to, to be uh, chastised, he gives you everything you want. To see the depth of that. You know, there's a, a, a boxer who, you know, this, this last phrase here, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. There's a boxer in 1996 who famously had his ear bit off. And, uh, but, but he wore the trunk with Philippians 4.13. You know, amazing, you know, fights, you know, those of us who watch those fights, amazing fights, and, and he would always proclaim, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Well, what is all things? It's a classic example of misusing that idea to trying to make it all things, right? I can, I can stand up on here and do a flip and land on my feet. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. And you're all saying, yes, you can. Go ahead. Do it. Do it. We really believe. No. There is a context to I can do all things. Those all things is I can deal with any and every circumstance. Whatever comes my way, I can deal with it. Now, sadly, losing sight of what all things meant. Maybe all things meant that, you know what, I'll be able to slip the right into Tyson at just the right time and put him down. That's not all things. All things is to be able to have godly contentment no matter how bad things get or how good things get. You know, his career earnings were 175, well, I'm sorry, it was 175 euro, million euros, $250 million, quarter of a billion dollars in career earnings, all gone. Where'd they go? To three divorces, 11 kids, all the child support payments, and to gambling debts. He recently sold his house in Atlanta, for $7.5 million, even though he paid twice for it, just to be able to get out of it in his, in his bankruptcy. Um, he could do all things, but that's the all thing that, that Christ wants to be able to do, is to help you to keep level-headed and godly, even when you have greatness that comes your way, whether that be success, or whether that be contentment, or, or even uh, humiliation. And, and Paul, of course, was one that... That, that new humiliation again and again. But here's, here's the bottom line uh, for us. I want to bring this thing to a close. If you really want to know the secret, it does come down to that Jesus, who has gotten hold of you, that you've preached the gospel to yourself that he has given to you, that Jesus having gotten hold of you is enough. Amen. That his love is enough so that the love of that boy or girl doesn't have to be the final solution. That his honor, his affirmation is enough so that you're not having to run around seeking the commendation or the promotion or the affirmation from worldly sources. That his security is enough. But here's what some say, yeah, but I don't know if I'm cut out for faith. I, I know I need to trust in Jesus. I need to have faith in Jesus. But am I one who's cut out for faith? I can't trust. Faith eludes me. But what you don't realize is you are living a life of faith. Every step that you take, you're taking is a life of faith. But it's faith in yourself. And until you recognize 
that you have a refusal to distrust yourself, you won't be set free to let this secret wash over you. This is the great leap of faith, is to deny self and follow Jesus. Deny self, follow me, Jesus says. It's The words are so familiar, they just kind of bounce off of us. But the depth of denying self means that you're no longer trusting self. But being able to trust in who you are in Jesus and what it is that he will do for you. And when that occurs, no matter what comes your way, my goodness, I'm, I'm so astounded by person after person in our fellowship who no longer put their trust in themselves, in their abilities, in any of those things. But when I think about Kim Versage, one of the things that we loved about Kim was just her energy to be able to run around camp and run around the field hockey field, to be able to do all these things, and then to have that essentially chopped off. I mean, just cut off by, by, by physical challenges. But to not see the light in her dim, the light whose source was Christ in her. To, to, to see Mira have this diagnosis of MS, Mira, who was the most radical of all of our college students. Mira, who would evangelize and go anywhere and everywhere that she could. Mira, to, to now have such, such a uh, disabling disease physically, but then to also recognize that there is nothing in her attitudinally, nothing in her from, from a faith standpoint, nothing in her from a contentment standpoint, nothing in her where it says, let your, your uh, gentleness, let your regal kindness be evident to all. My goodness, everywhere that mirror goes, you're almost like, you almost have to like step back because there's a, like a, a, a heavenly regal contentment that just fills the room as she comes in. And it's just so astounding. But again and again, but why? Why is this possible for them and for you? Is to deny self, distrust self, and, and finally recognize anything that matters, anything about you that could be wonderful, anything about you that is purposeful, anything about you that is significant, will come and come transcendently through Jesus Christ. Trust not in self, but in Christ. So as we close out, one, get ready for Tuesday, because we're going to... We're going to recite all of Philippians. Awesome. Let it be more than just a couple people doing that. But also this. Celebrate that you have significance and purpose in Jesus. That's bigger than you. And then what? Contend for that. It's not just having a purpose that's your own purpose. You've got a bigger purpose. Contend for the purpose of Jesus this week. And when you do, step back. Engage your contentment. You'll be pleasantly surprised. Amen. Thank you. Amen. Amen.